Hello, this is How I Crossed It. I'm Tunde and this is the podcast which shines a light on talent within the community. My guest this week is Matilda Aguirre-Cooper. She has packed in so much into her life, I don't know where she finds the time. She is an award-winning journalist from Texas, but has been living in the UK for 20, 25 years. Uh, as a music journalist, she's worked for the likes of Time Out, The Independent, uh, The Evening Standard, amongst others. And she's interviewed the likes of Alicia Keys and Stevie Wonder. Uh, she's moved more recently into content marketing for the likes of Cult Trip, and Sweaty Betty, where she came up with a collaboration with Hollywood actress Hayley Berry. Not only that, but she's been a lecturer at Burbick University. She has set up her own photography school. She's trained to be a running leader, so she could set up her own running community, Fly Girl Collective. And she herself has run multiple marathons, Tough Mudders, and the Ride London 100-mile bike ride. Last year, she was a judge for the British Interactive Media Association Awards, or BEMA Awards, which recognises the UK's most influential people in digital and tech. She also goes to the same barbershop that I go to, so I just had to get her on the show. So, Matilda, thank you so much for agreeing to do my podcast. Um, now, for the attentive sort of listeners out there, you you will remember that uh, Mark McIver, aka Slider Cuts, was our first guest a, a couple of weeks ago. And little did I know that Matilda is also a uh, a goer to Mark's barbershop in um, in Hackney. Yeah, Mark is great. How long have you known Mark? Oh, gosh. I mean, I've known of Mark for at least seven or eight years. He, um, I wrote about him for a feature I was doing when I used to work at Time Out. And then around that time, I just wanted short hair. And I loved the fact that um, he was really good at cutting hair. In fact, I knew him before he opened up his barbershop when he used to the, uh, I think it was DNLs or DLs. And he's just a good guy. You know, we share a lot of the same values. Uh, we're both Christians, we're both optimistic, both entrepreneurial. And so I love what he's also doing for the community. And yeah, so I, I don't actually get my hair cut by Mark anymore. <laughs> um, he's hired an amazing barber named Mervyn, who does my hair now, but I love to catch up with Mark whenever I visit. Yeah, I certainly need a haircut pretty soon. <laughs> I just looked at myself in the mirror this morning. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's been far too long. So going to head down there probably in the next week or so. Um, so people in the, in the, in the um, intro will have heard about your, your career, the journey that you've made. Um, I've kind of introduced you. You've had a, a fantastic and varied career. Um, I guess to some extent, you're, you're more used to being on the other side of the microphone in terms of interviewing people rather than being interviewed. Um, so I'm really sort of keen to know what kind of interviewee you are, bearing in mind you've been, you know, you've interviewed some of the titans of the music world. So what, what, kind, of, uh, what, kind, of, what kind of interviewee are you? Oh, I've never been asked that before. I mean, I'm not a Jeremy Paxman. <laughs> I'm probably a lot more just down to earth. You know, I really like to connect to the humanity of people. Um, I'd say super relatable, authentic, and really just trying to have just beautiful conversations. I think some of my best interviews, be it back when I was a music journalist or just doing human interest stories is just kind of speaking to people's humanity and authenticity. Good stuff. And we'll, we'll, we'll certainly go on to you being a music journalist uh, as we go through the interview. But um, just wanted to start off where it all began for you. I mean, where, where did it all begin for you? Where, 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 where was home for you when you grew up? Mm, so I was born and raised in Texas. I was there for the first 12 years of my life. 
And, you know, Texas was just an amazing time. It's probably where I first, I don't know. I mean, I always loved kind of writing and I loved a little bit of sport. And so I sort of remember myself as being someone who was just super academic, super into school. But um, by the time I hit my teens and we moved to the UK, I think I probably had a better idea as far as what I wanted to do with my life. And growing up in Texas, um, I mean, I don't know too much about the the city, but what were your, what are your memories of of growing up in that in that period? I mean, I remember playing a lot. <laughs> I remember loving music. Um, you know, I remember um, being at school like I was really academic. Like I think, and you know. I don't know if people still use the word boffin, but <laughs> I was just someone who wanted to answer the questions first, rush through my test. Um, and the thing is, I was a kid. I was only 12 years old. So, you know, we're going back at least 30 years <laughs> as far as my Texas memories. But I definitely remember, you know, family. Family was a, was a big thing, you know, being with cousins, you know, my auntie, who's like a second mother to me. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, one of the beautiful things about being a kid for the most part is you have really nice, glossy memories of, of childhood compared to, to adulthood. And do you remember what you wanted to be when you were, I don't know, like a seven, eight, nine, ten? Do you, do you remember what you wanted to, to be like uh, when you grew older? Because I know I remember at that age, I wanted to become a football player mm-hmm. and it never kind of deviated from that. You know, it wasn't a fireman. It wasn't a doctor. It wasn't an astronaut. It was always a footballer. So what, what was it for you? Mm, I mean, I think in Texas, I definitely didn't have a tangible idea of careers. I know what I liked doing. I liked writing. So I used to write short stories about all sorts. Um, I was always into fashion. So I was always creative and kind of doing drawings, even though I wasn't really good at art. But um, I definitely was creative. That's one thing I will remember about myself. And I was entrepreneurial. So I definitely remember I was the kid who, when my mom used to like buy bulk snacks um, from Tom Dumb or whatever supermarket um, we were using back then, I would resell, you know, some of those like snack bars and candy bars. And so I was just someone who definitely was creative, definitely was entrepreneurial, but I couldn't tell you when I grew up, I want to be that one thing. I think that kind of came once I moved to the UK and those conversations were happening, happening at school. Okay. And what, what was the, what was the reason? Are you able to to say that? Yeah, my mom, um, she just wanted to move the family to the UK. Um, I think she felt it was important that we had a change of scene. And so, yeah, she had family in Birmingham, which is where we initially landed. And yeah, she just wanted to have a new life for us. So you're a Brummy. Oh my gosh. One of my best friends is, is from Birmingham. So uh... <laughs> I don't know if six years counts. I never got the accent, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I was there. I was there for pretty much secondary school, college, and then decided to move to London for university. Now, I I know that you know I, I moved around quite a bit when I was a kid, and it can be quite disruptive. You know, you're you're kind of meeting different friends, and then you meet them, you befriend them, and then before you know it, you're moving on to the next set of friends in a different area. How did you cope? I mean, coming from the States and then going to a, a school in Birmingham, how did you, uh, you know, what did you make of the kids in, in the UK at that time? Mm, I mean, it was certainly a culture shock. It definitely was different on all levels simply because I never wore a school uniform when I was in the US. People talked a bit differently. Um, as far as the subjects we were learning, I felt that. Um, we had just learned and ticked a lot of boxes back at my school in Texas. So it definitely was an adjustment and I can't say I loved it, but 
and and when I say I, I didn't love it, it was just so different. I definitely think secondary school is also quite a uh, crucial time in a young person's life simply because they've gone from being top of the class in primary once you get to the final year to now starting from scratch. So whether it was the transition of being a new country or just that transition of now going on to this next level of education, it was definitely challenging for sure. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, I mean, you've kind of talked a little bit there about how you found the, the kids and just the environments. I mean, how do you think they found you, you know, as an, as an American in, 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 a, in a British school? What, uh, what kind of comments did you get back then, if you can remember? I mean, I don't remember any specific comments. I mean, school was certainly challenging. I mean, I don't think I was as popular as I was when I was back in the, the U.S., but I mean, I, I don't think I was called anything specific, but uh, I have no idea how they saw me. <laughs> I think, you know, yes, there, there's a sense of wanting to fit in when you're a kid. But equally, I think with the UK just being so foreign to me at that time, there was never this sense of I want to fit in. It was always a sense of, well, I still am American. I still identify as American. Um, I'm not really too particular about how people see me because um, they weren't like me. So I suppose there was never this sense of wanting to be like them. You know, when people ask me about my accent, they're like, oh, why do you still have your accents? Because, well, I had already defined my identity from quite a young age. So I don't think I was particularly fussed about how I was perceived and therefore I probably didn't pay attention to what they said about me. But equally, as I mentioned before, I was very focused on school and my education. So it was always about how do I get to the next level? What do I need to do to succeed? And that was like my, my primary focus. So was there a part of you maybe that was thinking, I'm not going to be here for that long, so therefore I don't need to make so much of an effort. I'm going to go back to the States at some point. Um, was that was that was that part of the the thought process? Um, I definitely had an ambition to go back at some point. I think if we're starting from secondary school, you know, one of the challenges was there just wasn't many people that looked like me. So I didn't go to a predominantly black school. So there there, there wasn't this real sense of trying to fit in because I couldn't if I even wanted to. But I would say when I got to college and now I'm surrounded by more like-minded people and people that look like me, um, it was then natural to kind of make friends and have friendship groups. So I think secondary school was very much its own experience. But then once I moved on to college and it was just growing up, I definitely had a lot more ownership as far as who I navigated around and more control as far more control I'd say but yeah there was definitely a desire to go back home but I think once I quickly ascertained what that would cost as far as <laughs> going to uni I, I just knew that wasn't able to happen or at least I wouldn't be able to do it for university yeah, that wasn't that wasn't a possibility. So you, you you got into college, you met some more friends, you you're maybe a bit a bit happier. Do, do you remember what you studied at college? Yeah, I did media studies, psychology, and sociology. Ah, oh, snap, sociology. I, I think that's transformed my life just in terms of the way that I see things. Um, and I always I'm quite grateful because I think I studied computer science, uh, funnily enough. And I, I just really couldn't get my head around that. And then my dad at the time said, oh, you know, why don't you consider sociology? And I just remember seeing some of the fat books that you had to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lambus, I think one of the, one of the textbooks were. Um, but then I, I was so glad that I did it. So, I mean, do, 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 did it have a similar impact on you, sociology? Mm, maybe not the same. I think I probably appreciate it now 
more more now than back then. I was more into psychology and I still am. Um, I think I was unfortunately the victim of just not a great sociology teacher. So <laughs> it was one of those situations where I think the sociology teaching we were meant to have was kind of like off sick for like the whole year or something. So it was just kind of, hey, read this, read that. So it wasn't really taught to us. Um, and as such, I didn't actually get the best grade. But psychology, I absolutely embraced, especially like behavioral and cognitive psychology. Like that probably inspired a lot of what I would go on to do because without wanting to jump the gun, um, in my career now, a lot of it is about understanding people's behavior. And even as a journalist, it's about understanding people's behavior. So did you, 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 I'm guessing you applied to get into uni. Did you get into the, into the one that you wanted to get to? Mm-hmm. I had, um, I had how many, to- how many choices? I can't remember back how many choices you could have. I, I definitely applied to, I think, three. Um, City was one of them. I didn't get into City, but I got into my second choice, which was the University of Arts to do journalism. Um, and it's funny because at the time it was called the London Institute. And it was a more like a, I mean, it's always been a collegiate, so it's not like your typical university by far. And that was disappointing for me, I have to say. It wasn't what I expected university to be like. Um, It is quite a a niche type of school. But, you know, I had a great time and it definitely set me up to go on to the things that I I go on to do. And in terms of studying journalism, I know you touched on it a bit earlier, but what, what what was the driver to kind of, you know, um, going for that particular route or, you know, sort of subject? Was it was it an influential teacher or was it, you know, your mom saying, oh, you should go for it? Or was it just you kind of finding out a bit more about the area? Hmm. I mean, so sort of flashing back to school, I did really well in English. And then when I um, got to college and I did media studies, that opened my eyes to what the media is and the different avenues within the media. I, in fact, I did really, I got an A in my um, media studies, A-level, simply because I loved it so much. And um, around the same time, there was a project that launched in Birmingham where young people could basically produce a magazine And I signed up to be a part of that project. And it was my first experience of being a journalist. I must have been like maybe 16. And then alongside that, I had the opportunity to do like a placement at the local newspaper. I think it was the Birmingham Mail. And I got to produce the back section, which was produced by young people. And that's kind of where I got my first flavor of journalism. And I think that's when I realized, actually, this is what I want to do as a career because I was just doing all this kind of teenage stuff on the side, writing, doing music reviews, and being just an avid music lover. I was just so fixed on becoming a music journalist. Like, you couldn't tell me anything else. You could, like, I mean, I was tempted to go into, like, radio, and I have dabbled in radio. I have dabbled in TV. But just becoming a music writer, going to shows, meeting musicians, talking about what they do, I couldn't think of anything better. So it was pretty much that. I don't think anyone kind of said to me, be a music journalist. But I definitely remember my media studies teacher being someone who was just as much of a music lover as I was. In fact, he was the one that introduced me to the Lauryn Hill album. And so... That was just that. I think once I'm the kind of person that once I have like an idea in my head, I just run with it. So that was that. And then so being a 16 year old, it just made sense for me to do a journalism degree. There were other options. Like I think at the time there used to be a degree called communication studies. I think it still exists. Um, Maybe English, but then I think my whole thing was what's the degree that will get me as close to my dream as possible 
and journalism kind of felt like that. I mean, in hindsight, I don't think I needed to be so literal because I've kind of, my career has evolved, but I definitely don't regret doing it. And I, and I a hundred percent don't regret my journalism career. It was good fun. I mean, I'm, I'm still technically a journalist, but I was very much a music journalist and got to do some really fun stuff. Yeah, I find this part of your career really fascinating and, you know, making the step from studying it at at, at university to becoming a fully-fledged music journalist. I mean, it's it's really fascinating. Some of the people that you've interviewed over the years. Um, But I guess before we get into those those uh, those stories, what was your first like proper job after leaving uni? So my first job was. I was an editor for a music website called darkerthanblue.com. And I can't fully remember how I got the opportunity. I think it might have just been, I mean, back in like Web 1.0 days, maybe just finding it advertised somewhere. And at the time, Darker Than Blue was this really incredible, groundbreaking brand that was promoting urban music. And it was almost like a who's who of. Um, graphic designers, writers, music heads. Um, and it got a lot of investment. <laughs> so I remember Darker Than Blue was this kind of brand that I would see at like Carnival and just see around town. And then a few years later, an opportunity came up for me to become the editor. It was, it had definitely moved along from its heyday by the time I became the editor. That being said, it really kind of gave me my a solid grounding in sort of digital web journalism. And in fact, I'd probably say it was, yeah, like my, my first job. And, but alongside that, um, later down the line, I would start to freelance as um, a journalist, just writing for newspapers like New Nation, um, RIP, dope, dope newspaper for yeah. the black community. I did some bits for The Voice. Um, and I was just doing whatever I could. It was one of those things where, you know, at 21, I was just so hungry. I just knew that I needed to get as many bylines as possible, just get my name out there, and hopefully things would start to snowball, which they did. And yes, they snowball, they, they did. Um, so I, I believe you started working or, or freelancing for the likes of Time Out and some other... Is it The Guardian as well? Mm. Um, how, how did you get those opportunities? Um, so before that, after Darker Than Blue, I wrote for loads of urban music magazines. So I wrote for like Touch Magazine, um, who at the time, one of my good friends was an editor there. And um, who else was I writing for back then? I want to say I did a bit of stuff for Echoes. Um, I mean, there were so many, so many magazines. Uh, there was another magazine called Untold, which was like a men's magazine. Um, I did a little bit for the face ID and I was just doing like all these kind of bits and pieces. And along with that, I was really getting to know a lot of the PRs, a lot of the record labels and just kind of making a name for myself. You know, like I I said, I was just very hungry. I'd be at absolutely everything, every opening, every music playback session I was there. Um, And then one day a PR who I'd become quite good friends with, she asked me if I wrote for any broadsheets and I was like, what are you talking about? No, I'm not going to write for a broadsheet until I'm like 30. And at the time, I think I was like, Hmm, 24, 23. I just thought, no, no, that's, that's something you do in the far distant future. And she asked me if I um, wanted to write for a broadsheet and if I wanted to write for the independent. And I was like, oh, sure. What do I need to do? And she said, well, I would love for a journalist to check out one of my artists. Um, it's a ska band. They're playing at Fairfield Hall in Croydon. And the editor, the independent was like, look, if you can find the writer, we'll give you the space. So I think you could be, I think you're, you're right for this. And I'm like, oh my God. Okay. And I just remember thinking, wow, this is, this is my shot. (laughs) 
because I had always wanted to write for broadsheet. This is an opportunity that's being presented to me. And I also know that if I do a really good job, this could be the, the turning point. I did not know the band in the slightest. So this wasn't like, hey, could you go and check out... It was big back then. <laughs> I don't know. Alicia Keys or something. But um, no, it was just go and check out the ska band. And so I remember I've never spent so much time on an article in my life. <laughs> I just was like, I need this to be perfect. And David Lister, who I don't know if he's still there, but he was my editor at the time. I submitted the feature. Didn't hear much from him. He was a man of few words <laughs> when I first met him. And then I remember he emailed me back and he's like, great, what else do you have? And I was like, oh, snap, okay. Um, and so at the time when I was freelancing for New Nation, I had the opportunity to interview Alicia Keys in... In fact, I can't remember if it was the first time or the second time I interviewed Alicia. I'd interviewed her a few times. But in any case, I said to David, yeah, well, I'm doing this interview with Alicia Keys. And, you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, quite a naive 20-something-year-old, magazines do exclusives. So when we had the opportunity to interview Alicia for New Nation, it was a New Nation exclusive because... The Independent was a competitor to The Guardian. And I didn't know what conversations were happening with The Guardian, but based on my interview that I did for New Nation, I had enough extra. So I didn't duplicate any quotes or anything like that, but I had sort of enough to kind of craft another feature for The Independent. So I sold that to The Independent and then got a lot of tr- got into a lot of trouble <laughs> by the PR because it's like, bro, you've messed up like my whole game plan. I'm like, oh, I didn't know, I didn't know. But anyway, that Alicia Keys interview then enabled me to just have a really promising freelance um, pipeline of work with The Independent, which lasted for the better part of seven to eight years. So all the while, um, I was a freelance journalist. That was pretty much the first part of my career, freelancing. I worked at the BBC part-time. I worked on Newsround for a little bit. Um, I was one of a re- one of the regular contributors for Blues and Soul magazine. So that was kind of like my little, my thing. That was kind of like my, my hustle. And it was all working. I, was, I did a bit of freelancing for ITN as one of their digital producers. So that was it. That was kind of where I was at. So Time Out didn't really come until much later because... This was, everything was going swell until the 2008 recession and freelance work naturally started to dry up because there were other more pressing matters at hand when it came to just what was happening in the nation. And it just meant the luxury of a, of a music journalism career just wasn't, um, was just that, a luxury. And it was hard to make it sustainable. So I did a bit of a deviation. I decided to go into teaching for a bit. I did a a PGCE part-time, which would qualify me as a teacher. And then I spent a couple of years working for like social enterprises where I would teach media, journalism, that sort of thing. So I did that for a while, for maybe about... About three to four years. But one of the things about teaching is if you're doing something like journalism, you still want to have your kind of foot in. You don't want to feel completely disconnected from the industry. So I felt a real appetite to return back to the media on a full-time basis rather than teaching because the social enterprise work was great. Eventually, I started lecturing as well at Birkbeck College but I wanted to get back into the media, but not necessarily as a traditional journalist. Cause I think by that time I just wanted to just explore the broader media landscape. So then, um, I applied for a job at timeout and, uh, one of my good friends, Mark, he was the one that offered me the role to look after their sort of 
network of bloggers and that's kind of what opened me up to kind of community management and yeah sorry that was a very long way to get to time out but I thought it's worth me <laughs> closing oh, no. the gap a little bit so much so much to unpick there I mean you've mentioned so much things I mean lecturing kind of um, taking a, 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 a kind of step back from music journalism because of the recession in 2008. Um, but I just wanted to kind of just just sort of finish off with the music journalist, uh, journalism. I mean, you mentioned you just kind of <laughs> informally and kind of in a relaxed way just mentioned Elisa Keys, you, you know, the, the fact that you interviewed her more than once. Um who, who were your sort of highlights in terms of people that you interviewed in that period? I mean, mm. maybe she, she would be one of them. And who, who else would you say were the highlights during that part of your, your, your career? Yeah, um, a few. Stevie Wonder definitely was up there simply because that was an interview that nearly didn't happen. But uh, he was great. And he's, I mean, it was the first time I got to see him live as part of the um promo for the album he was doing which i think it was called a time to love so it was kind of like new stevie trying to do a thing but in any case it was a great thing i mean just 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 on that i mean stevie wonder my gosh he's still alive he's done so much stuff over the years yeah that was from blues and soul too so it was, it was oh great. my words fantastic so just take us back to that interview. I mean, I'm guessing because he's such a big figure in, 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 in the music world, you must have done a lot of research for that interview. But how are you feeling on the actual day? Like, you know, you're in the room, you're in your chair, he's about to walk in. What, what are you feeling? How, how are you at that moment before he walks in? I mean, so it was a bit unconventional simply for the fact that there was no room nor chair. I... um his PR basically at the 11th hour kind of called me up to say, look, do you want to chat to Stevie? Um, great PR at the time. I don't know if he's still at Ireland, but his name is um, Shane O'Neill or McNeil O'Neill. Any case, he called me up and said, Hey, are you around? Would you like to interview Stevie? Cause I think maybe a couple weeks prior, I knew that, the album was dropping. I kind of said, Shane, look, if there's any opportunity to hook a sister up, because I was writing for Blues and Soul. And I said to Bob, who's the editor at Blues and Soul, look, if Stevie comes, can I do Stevie? He's like, yeah, all good. So I'm hoping that any minute now I'll get an opportunity to interview him. And the opportunity comes and Shane says, look, can you get down to, um, I think it was uh, a hotel, Hyde Park, um, like, can you get down here in like 15 minutes? And I was like, uh, yeah, bearing in mind, I was at work. So <laughs> I was like, um, can I just go on my lunch break? Yeah, yeah, cool, cool, cool. And I was like a runner at the time. So nobody was too fast. So here's me hoping that I can interview Stevie Wonder in my lunch break. But being someone who was always ready, I had like my tape recorder on me, you know, I was, I was prepared. So I jumped in a cab, got down to this hotel and um, Simon Hattonstone, who's like a big journal at The Guardian, he was finishing up his interview with Stevie and kind of saying bye and taking too many photos and <laughs> doing all the things. And I remember just kind of waiting, you know, for my opportunity to kind of, you know, chat to him. And then so his PR comes, oh, it was the Lanesboro Hotel. Lanesboro, because I was like, I need to remember the name. Yeah, the Lanesboro. And so his PR comes up to me and says, sorry, we've actually run out of time. So unfortunately, you won't be able to interview him. And I'm like, no, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, I can't remember exactly, but I just remember thinking there must be a way, surely. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and it was like, nah, sorry, sorry. I'm so sorry. It's like, why are you got to be kidding me? Come on. Because, I mean, Simon was taking his sweet time taking all those photos, so I very much blame him to this day. But um, <laughs> the PR was like, but you can meet him. You know, you can say hello to him. I was like, I guess, better than nothing. So she kind of... Um, pulls me over to Stevie, who's now available and free. And she introduces me and says, hi, this is Matilda from Blues and Soul. 
was like, yeah, let me to meet you. I was meant to interview you now, but unfortunately <laughs> I can't. And he's like, oh, well, you know, can she interview me in the cab? You know, because we're on our way to the Parkinson show. And I'm like, yeah, can I? <laughs> and, you know, the people are like, oh, sure, whatever you want, Mr. Wonder, you know. And so I interviewed him in the back of a cab on the way to the Parkinson show, which is at ITV, which is from the Lanesboro, is probably 15, 20 minutes. So, which is perfect, which is fine. So, yeah, that was interesting because I'm sat back, you know, in the back of this car with him, just chatting to him. And he's just there. <laughs> Obviously, you can't see me, but, you know, there wasn't like, I suppose, the typical nerves you would have. Um, when interviewing celebs, but he was great and very perceptive. He could hear the mild Nigerian accent in my tone, which is incredible. Uh, I don't have a Nigerian accent, but he could tell that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> um, just because he's that sensitive to dialects and tones. And so, yeah, it was incredible. Um, yeah, nice guy. So funny, too. What a great story. My gosh, that's such a uplifting story. And um, just, you know, when you have to just take advantage of the situation, you just kind of click into gear, don't you? Mm -hmm. You don't have time to worry about things. So it seems like that was uh, one of those instances for, for you. Mm, especially as I didn't get back to like, get back to work for like another two hours. I don't even. Oh, right. How did you explain that then? Nobody noticed I was gone. Two, two hours <laughs> late. <laughs> okay. Crazy about it. Good stuff. Well, they, before you mentioned that you, you um, you started teaching at Burbick College, uh, Burbick University, sorry. Um, what, what were you teaching back then? Randomly, I was teaching some modules within the journalism provision. And they were like the principles of layout and design. So it was quite interesting because I suppose as a journalist, and more so in my day-to-day -day work now, it's so important to kind of understand layout, especially when it comes to like magazine and newspaper production because a lot of that will kind of influence sort of creating the final products you know maybe the type of features you want to do and so on and so forth so I taught the principles of layout and design and I taught a module on strategic communications and then one on PR so yeah it wasn't actually traditional journalism and I remember at the time kind of wrapping my head around communications because it's something I'd never even known existed. But I also remember thinking that as far as career, it was probably an area I wanted to explore a little bit more just because it seemed just right at my street as far as strategy, looking at ways of telling a story in different to get certain outcomes. Um, so yeah, interestingly enough, just teaching for a couple of years was the sort of catalyst for my career pivot down the line. And I did a little bit of research um, myself and I found out that around about this time, and you can sort of correct me if I'm wrong, you also started up a photography school. Is that, is that right? Mm -hmm. So interestingly enough, during the recession, that was kind of just my opportunity to kind of explore everything and look at alternatives as far as career and options. And it's interesting because with the photography school, I, um, that was kind of born out of my blog. So as a journalist, it just felt in the early noughties, you were not a true journalist if you didn't have a blog it was a great way of kind of defining your voice in a way that podcasting has now become the thing. And it was a way for me to kind of talk about my work and what I was doing. But I remember having a really good a chat with a good friend um, who kind of suggested I look, I get into blogging as a way of not just creating a brand, but actually making money and looking at ways to kind of monetize it. And I remember reading um, Gary Vaynerchuk, who's now Gary V, but I knew him as Gary Vaynerchuk. And he had a book called Crush It. And he really talked about how you can almost create an online brand and monetize it. So I ended up creating a blog called The Cultural Expose. 
which was my version of timeouts before I ended up working at timeout. It was a way of documenting things to do and see in London through a black female lens. And it was promoting like events to go to, restaurants to check out. And actually it was doing its thing for a minute. As part of that, I kind of came up with the idea of creating a membership club Um, that was called the culture club. And so as part of that, I would help facilitate meetups and opportunities for people to connect in the city, doing different cultural things. And I, alongside doing the blog, I decided to kind of just do a photography course because I wanted to just up my photography game. Absolutely loved it. Absolutely fell in love with photography and decided to offer photography as just one of the culture club activities. And every time I did the photography course, it would always sell out. So then I just thought, actually, maybe I should make the photography stuff the thing that would be supported by the cultural expose. And then I just ended up launching like pretty much a glorified photography school, teaching people beginner photography, night photography, street photography, ended up hiring teachers to teach the courses. Wow. It was good luck. We did a great um, collaboration with like Take Modern at one point, did a really cool thing with MasterCard um, at the V&A. It was going great, but I think it became very apparent that I'm a creative (laughs) and even though I'm I'm entrepreneurial. I'm not a CFO. I don't want to be a CFO. (laughs) Um, I don't want to be a business officer. I just want to make things happen and execute. So I'm brilliant at producing and I'm not too bad. I mean, I'm pretty decent at business. You know, I'll kind of dot my I's and cross my T's and I'll make it profitable. But that stuff I find really boring. (laughs) So it's not what I want to do. And so I decided, to be fair, I just, being a journalist, you're always kind of in tune with what's happening culturally, what's trending. And I could see that with photography, because of technology, there was going to be a world where people actually, the demand for photography was going to dwindle simply because we now all have really good phones. (laughs) Sorry, really good cameras on our phones. And uh, the whole novelty of having like an SLR camera and having 50 billion lenses, I could see was starting to die down. So I think I kind of just dipped out, you know, while I could kind of close the business and then made that decision to kind of get back into the industry, but as a different kind of journalist. Um, But the photography is great. It's a shame. I'm looking at my camera now gathering dust. Me too. I'm one of those people that has an SLR and I was so excited when I got it. And then obviously technology's moved on and I've barely touched it in the last, probably since the pandemic, I haven't touched it. And it's, you know, you you don't need to, do you really? Same. So uh, at that point, I mean, you've you've, you've had a fantastic um, career as a journalist, music journalist. You've kind of stepped into, dipped your toe into teaching at the university. You've set up this photography school. What was the um, thought behind pivoting into content marketing? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I feel like I I stumbled uh, stumbled on it. And it really kind of starts from time out because I was working on the digital team, sort of fostering this sort of community of contributors. But then alongside that, I was writing for different sections of the magazine and um, website. And I just ended up meeting the guys that worked in the creative solutions team simply just by the fact that around 2010, I was really getting into fitness. I had discovered a running group called Rundum Crew. Um, It really changed my whole mindset as far as what running could be and what fitness could be. So I just went on one as far as just getting fit. So did I say 2010? Yeah, I, Rundum was in 2010. And then by the time I started at Time Out in 2015, I was just a fitness fanatic. So people just knew me as, oh, Matilda, she's a fitness girl. She's a running girl. And a lot of the guys in the Creative Solutions team would just hit me up if a new brief came onto their um, desk and it was 
something fitness related. And I think at the time in London, there was a bit of a fitness boom with loads of boutique gyms and running was kind of taking hold. Rondon Crew was doing incredibly well as far as its profile because there was nothing else like it in London at the time. So I was just always seen as that go-to because I did Rundown because of all my various things. But what I didn't realize was that the Creative Solutions team were selling branded content. It wasn't something that I was familiar with. Um, but then once I was, I realized, oh, this is what used to be known as advertorials, which was a bit of a no-go area as a journalist because it wasn't seen as real journalism back then. And I think that time, sort of around 2015, there was this real sweet spot, I suppose, in marketing where actually there was an appetite for real journalism from brands because brands almost wanted to position themselves as publishers or wanted to position themselves as a lot more authentic. And I think that's where content marketing became, for me, a sweet spot between the entrepreneurial side of me that likes to make business opportunities and create something out of nothing and do amazing projects, but also loves and appreciates the authentic storytelling that journalism affords. So after they kept on hitting me up, sort of pretty much glorified consultation, I realized I was just really intrigued by it. And so by the time I left Time Out, I was like, right, I, I want to go to a content marketing agency. I want to really immerse myself in this world. I really want to understand it and be all about it. I feel like this is the right career pivot for me because journalism at that time, and even now, I suppose, was always just one of those really untenable industries where whew, you could have a job today and not tomorrow. And there was just something about content marketing that felt a little bit more secure because you're pretty much influencing the bottom line of the brand. So um, I went to a small content marketing agency. Shout out to Shelly for giving me that opportunity. And I just, you know, had a brilliant manager there, Laura, who kind of just took me under her wing and just taught me everything she could about pure marketing, but also through the lens of content. And because I was the content specialist, I really just started to develop an expertise for myself. And I see that um, you've worked for some fantastic companies in content marketing, Culture Trip, who I'm familiar with, Sweaty Betty as well. And now, is it right you're working for a marketing agency, back agency side? Yep, yep. I'm at Dentsu. Dentsu, great stuff. Um, how, how did you find it at uh, Sweaty Betty? I mean, I, mean I, I guess that must have been amazing sort of, being in the world of sports and you're, you're, you're kind of growing this this passion for running yourself. How, 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 was, how was that period for you? Yeah, I mean, it was my, it was sort of like one of my, I don't want to say first steps in leadership because I felt like the jobs that I had prior were very much pulling me in that direction of senior leadership. But you know, being able to kind of manage a, a function like content and social at Sweaty Betty was a real privilege. And especially from like a retail um, approach, that was definitely new for me. So it was a steep learning curve, but a valuable one because I just knew nothing about e-commerce and retail in that way. <laughs> very, very different from journalism, but also very, very useful. And because I was looking after content and social, I just had the opportunity to just create some really amazing work, do some awesome campaigns. Um, highlight being our campaign with Halle Berry on her collection with Sweaty Betty um, and just doing some dope stuff for International Women's Day. And, you know, I am a digital native, always have been. And I suppose the, the thing I truly loved about being there was that I could bring together my passion for fashion, alongside my passion for content and social media and community building. So um, it was definitely um, a great time. And then also your, your passion for running as well. And then oh. I, I see again around about this time, you um, decided to 
set up your own kind of running community. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about that? And, and why and, and why you decided to, I know you said you were part of Rundin run Crew back in the day, but why did you decide to set up your own kind of community? Yeah, so it's an interesting one because going back to 2015, again, I was at Time Out, doing loads of fitnessy things, making some really great friendships um, from Rundin Crew. It was almost just like a running joke. Like whenever myself and like two other black women would get together at Rundam at race events. I just remember calling our, calling us fly girl collective one day, just as a joke, just as like a throwaway phrase. And I'm like, Oh, look at that. You know, sisterhood, fly girl collective. Um, and as being from the States, you know, a lot of my vernacular is still American. So we were a collective of fly girls. <laughs> and so, it, you know, mm-hmm. I thought it was a thing or at least just in that moment. And then a few years later, say 2017, I was like, what would happen if I actually tried to make this a thing? Like what would happen if I actually take running so seriously that I train to be a run coach and leader, I set up a website and I organize sessions where actually women like me and my two friends could come together and it's just about the gowdom. Like that in my mind would feel quite <laughs> amazing because up until that point, you know, Rundem was probably the only diverse running community that existed in London because running in of itself is a very middle class or it was this very kind of middle class, pale male stale <laughs> activity. But the one consistent thing that I saw across Rundam and any other community was that there was, it was just predominantly men. So I just thought, what if I created this space for women, for black women, women of color, that was a safer space that wasn't about speed and all this technical stuff that you encounter when you get into running. What if it was just about us looking fly, being fly and enjoying the freedom of running? So then 2018, you know, I pulled together a website because, you know, I'm a digital girl. girl. I created a brand because I'm a brand girl. Um, and Flygo was born. And so thanks to my media connections and just all the, I suppose, capital I had gained over the years as just someone who was known in the industry, I was able to kind of give it a really good head start as far as its profile. Um, so within a year, we did a photo shoot with Stylist Magazine. That was brilliant. Great spreads. Um, I did an interview on the BBC World Service site. Um, we just got a lot of amazing profile. So yeah, Fly Gold just was almost my, a way to kind of bring a little bit of equity in the running and fitness space, but as a way of my give back, because I think I'd gotten to a point in my career where Things would always flourish, you know, God willing. And it's so easy to lose sight of the things that really matter when you get to a certain point in your career. Like you can just keep going up and living whatever dream you think is worthwhile, but also forgetting that it's so important to just pay it forward, whether that's through, you know, your career, your industry, or through something else. So for me, Fly Girl just became my give back. I didn't necessarily do it because I wanted to become a fitness coach, you know, like I love fitness and I love it enough to be able to mentor others through it, but it was never my career. My career has always been content, marketing, journalism. So that was that. So it was always a nice thing to have on the side. And as I mentioned, by being a creative, it was almost a bit of a creative outlet for me. Whereas in my day-to-day job, it was becoming a lot more managerial, leadership, strategic, of course, creative, but some of those, you know, skill sets that you don't always, that doesn't always allow you the freedom to just be and do and and be creative. Now, the listeners probably don't know, but um, I know that you've, you've run multiple half marathons, multiple marathons as well. I think also maybe an ultra marathon. I'm not quite sure what that is. You've done Tough Mothers. You've, you've done Ride London. Uh, uh, you've done a hundred mile bike ride as well. I mean, these are just awesome. Um, 
what is the secret to, to running these long distances? You know, for, for novices like myself and others out there who maybe go to the gym, you know, a couple of times a week, you can run maybe a 5K. How do you take, how do you step that up from a 5K to maybe doing a half marathon or a, or a marathon? Yeah. yeah, I know it might sound simple, but the first word that comes to mind is consistency. Um, and I say that because when I first started running and I remember the run leader that evening at Rundown was like, so tonight we're going to run like a 10K. And I'm like, well, how many miles is that? And like six miles. I'm like, sorry, excuse me. So we're running six miles two nights. Why would we do that? <laughs> As it, like it was unfathomable for me that, you know, that's what we would do. But I, one thing I really honor Charlie Dark for is ensuring that he would create a club where we were actually challenging ourselves. <laughs> you know, like you can create running groups and maybe you'll run a 5K in the evening. And this is going back to 2010 where running, we weren't running. So running culture today isn't what it was 10 years ago when we were all just like, I guess we'll run a mile or, you know, we'll run 10K, but that's the most we can do. But what started happening was because we were meeting every single week, (laughs) you suddenly get good. And suddenly you're like, oh, snap. Okay. So maybe six months ago, I really struggled to do this. And now this feels possible. And then you start entering races and that starts to feel good. And then someone says, okay, well, now you've done a 10K. How about train for a half marathon? And so what I've really fallen in love with over the years is kind of like the training process. Um, because the little steps you do suddenly enable you to become a person that you never imagined you could be when you started. And I would say that's the same for my career that actually things just start to compound. So a 5K then suddenly becomes a 10K and then a 10K becomes a half marathon and a half marathon then becomes a marathon. And then it's like, okay, what else can I do? Maybe I'll do an ultra marathon, which is a bit further than a marathon. Yeah, what what is that? How many miles is that? It can vary, but this particular Uh, ultra was 50K. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was wild. Um, yeah. So you just, like, that, that's the beautiful thing about the body and the mindset. Like, if you can kind of get the two things in step, then it kind of makes the impossible quite possible. So I'm, I distinctively remember there was a guy at Rundum when people started doing marathons and all this stuff and London Marathon became like the landmark event that everyone's like, oh, got to enter London Marathon. Me and Chris were like, meh, forget, why, why am I doing a marathon for? Like, what is the point? <laughs> why would I do that to myself? Like, let me just chill. And lo and behold, I've only gone on to do five. So it's just one of those things where you just start getting really good at something and then you just keep going. Um, so that's how that happened. And I, I have by no means, like I wasn't, you know, at school, I liked running. I loved running a lot, but I never imagined that I'd become a marathoner. Never mind, you know, some of the other crazy things I've done, but yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Um, you've been such a fantastic guest. I mean, we've actually gone on a bit longer than, um, I, I had planned to, but it's just because your stories are so sort of interesting and, uh, inspiring. Um, as, as we draw to a close, one of the taglines of the, of the podcast is that we shine a light on, on talent within the community. So with all of the success that you've had in the various forms, you know, journalism, content marketing, and, and, uh, more recently with your, with your running group, what do you think has been the main contributing factor? Has it been luck? Has it been talent or has it been hard work? Um, I don't believe in luck. I think that, you know, God puts us on this planet for a reason, but I think God also honors the work that we put into anything. You know, there's a Bible verse that says faith without works is dead. So there is something in being able to kind of put your hand to something. And if you're diligent at that, then things just naturally start to to flourish. So 
For sure. I think I have quite a strong work ethic. I think I'm very much a believer in the process and actually just allowing my journey to naturally take shape because all I wanted to do was be a music journalist. (laughs) Like that was literally it. And all these other doors have kind of been opened as a result of just that one seed that was sown. So yeah, I think that answers your question. I mean, if I, if I can make one observation, I mean, I've been noticing as we've gone through the last hour that um, often when you've been given an opportunity, it's been people calling you up, you know, it's hit, people hitting you up as you, as you referenced earlier about this opportunity, somebody else calling you up about that opportunity. So it seems from the outside that you are like a super networker um, and that people just really want to, um, yeah, give you opportunities. So you must be doing something to keep in contact with that person and various different people over the years for them to, you know, give you a call. What, what, is, this, what is that? I mean, what, what's, uh, what's the secret behind that? How, how do you get people to keep giving you a call? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because um, I think, what's his name? Malcolm Gladwell, he has a book where he talks about the different types of people in any sort of uh, situation or context. And I think based on um, his book, I'm, you'd probably describe me as a, a connector. And I think, that, oh, it's the tipping point, I think. Um, I think that's the name of the book. I'm, I'm just really friendly. <laughs> I think, I think I'd probably say is maybe the thing. Um, I, I sort of treat people, um, kindly. I, I sort of, integrity is a big thing for me. I, I suppose I'm something of a networker, but I'm also weirdly introverted, but I like people. I like talking to people. Um, and I suppose I like to connect, as I said at the beginning of the chat, with the humanity of people. So maybe it's that, but also I'm quite trustworthy. So I think people know that, you know, I'm a woman of my word. I give 110% and I'm just pretty genuine and authentic. So um, I think it's kind of that, really. Like I'm not the kind of person who, I suppose in any given space, be at work, community, I am known, but not because I go out of my way to be known. Um, but I'm certainly kind and I think kindness goes a long way. And, and what do you think you would have done if you hadn't have made it in journalism? Well, not if you hadn't have made it, but if you didn't go into journalism, you know, when you were at that crossroads, when you were just kind of maybe leaving university, what other career could you have possibly done? if it wasn't for, for kind of journalism at that early stage? Maybe psychology. I'd probably be a psychologist. That was, that was the first choice. So I wanted to be a child psychologist. And when I did the maths, I was like, oh, this would take way too long. Yeah. <laughs> but who knows? I may end up doing it later in life. You know, this is not the end. I think, you know, you go through many, you go through many careers, and I have done. Portfolio careers, yeah, absolutely. It's the way forward, I think. It's the way forward. Yeah, I, you know, I think we're not just, you know, design. I mean, I, to, to be honest, I credit people who can maybe do like the one job for like a 20, 30 years. I think that's so commendable because it also, that in of itself, I think is a skill. Whereas I think because I'm just inherently creative and I like to explore all the facets of me and I'm evolving all the time as I continue to grow and grow up. It's only natural that I develop new skills that may benefit someone or somewhere um, as time goes on. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Matilda, celebrity psychologist coming to you maybe in the (laughs) next five years. You heard it here first. But um, when's your, when, what, what's your next biggest race that you're, you're, you're training for at the moment? Mm, the Malta Half Marathon in February. Oh, so like literally 
days, week, a couple of weeks away. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. Matilda, you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you very much indeed for your time this evening. No, my pleasure. Thanks so much to Matilda for being such a great storyteller and being such a great guest. If you want to catch her online, you can catch her on the socials at Fly Girl Collective. That's at Fly Girl Collective. I'll put in the show notes the book that she recommended as well that's it now for this episode of how i crushed it if you enjoyed the show please tell your friends you can follow us on the socials at how i crushed it and catch you on the next show